What's happening, Tyler? How are you? <laughs> Good. Welcome to the This Guy Edits podcast. Yes, it's a podcast where we sometimes curse. And <laughs> just making sure you know that before you start listening, because we're going to get into it in this one. Not just because we're who we are, but because of the scene that we're doing. It's going to be pretty intense. Yeah, it's a, it's a scene from the show Mindhunter, which you know if you clicked on it, and you should probably know that that's an R-rated show. And also, I do believe every podcast has the NSFW warning on it, which seems like a, a clue. Yeah, you should be yeah. listening to it at work. Yeah, we're only just mentioning this because um, I came across a comment on the YouTube where somebody probably wrote a whole essay on why we should not be cussing. And I don't have it in front of me, but it basically was just a rendition on why that's so unprofessional and he will never listen to a podcast again because we're using the fuck word. And <laughs> just going for it. <laughs> and... I was just thinking about Stephen King, actually, because he wrote a book called On Writing, and he wrote an essay about why everybody should be cussing more. And Which video is this, Sven, that the comment is on? One of the recent ones. Okay. I, I, I mean, I can dig it up if you want to. No, I no, I'm I, looking for it. Uh, carry okay. on. I've read that book, too, and I know what you're talking about, sugar versus shit. Yeah, exactly. And it's so fitting. Uh, on Writing is really an excellent book anyway. Um, if you're an aspiring filmmaker and you want to write scripts, you need to read that book. It's amazing. On Writing. And part of yes. that is basically saying, like, that's how people talk. That's how real people talk. And if you are creating characters... That's what they would be saying. There's no dilly-dallying around it. There's no making it nice. That's how we are as persons when we're not officially, professionally trying to present something. And that's how I'm living my life. That's how I'm looking at cutting these scenes. There's no, there's no filter. And so I have no interest in putting a filter on this podcast. And if that offends you, there are plenty other podcasts you can listen to. Or just uh, get used to it. Yeah, it's funny because when I teach, I never cuss because that doesn't seem like an environment for it. And I'm, and I, I, I can't think. Uh, the only movie I could think I would feel bad that that happened during is Peter Rabbit that we reviewed. But I, geez, if you're watching the City of God clip and you hear a profanity, I apologize. But way, way worse things are happening. Yep. On that note, I don't know. I, I think, but that is something I think about when I do hear it, and we use profanity and stuff is is that necessary oh yeah because it's this is where you are it's a fun unhinged place and i mean good lord it's not the highly successful howard stern podcast or dr drew's podcast with adam carolla anywho about room with the view we reviewed that last week and and i said i was gonna i was gonna watch the 50 minutes of documentary on it before filmstruck expired just out of curiosity whether day lewis did his own stand-in work or not mm -hmm. i did watch it rest in peace filmstruck it expired at midnight last night of this recording you can currently sign up for the criterion channel to be an early adopter or something along those lines when it launches in the spring and get a reduced price so maybe do that maybe don't whatever i miss filmstruck so in regards to room with a view one thing i learned watching the documentaries was that the the writer who whose name you pronounce perfectly sven who's done so many films with merchant ivory one of the steps of their process is to bring her into the editing room, which I thought was really cool. And they said that normally in Hollywood, the writer would be nowhere within a million miles of the editing room. But with her, they love to have her in because she was very helpful in terms of editing because her mindset was what an editor's should be, which is tell the story as quickly and succinctly as possible. And that is all that matters. So it would be really helpful. James Ivory said that the original cut of Room with the View was a bit of a mess because there's a lot of improvisation and stuff and they far from nailed it. He might've even said it was just a, a hopeless disaster. And she came in and looked at it and was incredibly helpful in them shaping the film that we ultimately ended up with. And that's one of the cool things about that movie and why it's funny when people say Merchant Ivory is boring because it is so clean and so fast and so, so efficient considering the, the nature of the story and, and time period. So I thought that was a good anecdote to share since you have no way to access that documentary yourself with Filmstruck being gone. I'm sure it's going to pop up somewhere. I mean, you talked about the Criterion Collection as opening up on Spectrum or something, but also Warner, Time Warner is doing some things to um, keep this license, uh, keep this library alive and actually 
opening it up to more people by what they're doing, just making it part of their mainstream streaming. And one other thing I wanted to add real quick. Oh, about Dennis's video. I, I thought it was great. It was cool because last week Sven gave Dennis a note on the video, on, on the editing of his videos, and you can go check it out to see how that was interpreted. But I thought that he really, really, really took it and did an incredible job to a point where I was like, oh, wow, because it's always still surprising when people take your notes. <laughs> I still get surprised by that. When they, and he really took it and, and ran with it or didn't listen to it and just made an awesome move by himself. Did you have any other thoughts on, on his, his pass, Sven? Because I think that's kind of a cool thing to have people hear your notes and then see how that's reflected in the video additionally. Yeah, I really liked his um, new video. I also gave him a note to say, don't do the first pass when we just explain what the scene is, which is, I think, something you suggested. Yeah, but right. But that's personal because I can't stand myself. <laughs> go right into the analysis and he did that and at the beginning when I saw the video I'm like I don't know if that's working but then within like the first 30 seconds I realized oh that's actually really helpful you like just right in there right away yeah I thought that it might have gotten a little confusing because there were a couple points that he jumped back to where he's talking about Daniel Day-Lewis but we're holding on or he's talking about Cecil but we're holding on George right, right. But then that was all erased, and it's now the greatest video in the history of YouTube because he created a graphic at the end called <laughs> matching the room with the view graphics that said watching Cecil dance and <laughs> has a little dance sequence that he created. So Fun. congratulations, Dennis. You made the greatest video in the history of YouTube. Very much appreciated, Dennis. And we're actually working now on a video together that's going to be like on the channel, like a real video. And um, so we're taking that relationship to the next level. Very cool. Now, speaking of the next level, Sven, how do people listen to this podcast? How do they listen to this podcast? Well, in all kinds of ways. Some might even listen on it on an Android. Just kidding. Um, so it's thisguyedits.com slash podcast. That's where all the links are up. So if you are on Stitcher or on Spotify or iTunes, Apple Podcast. All these links will be there, and that's where you can listen to it. Also in the video description, or in the podcast description, I should say, there's always going to be a link of the original video that we're analyzing. So you can, if you want to, see that scene first before you listen to us tear it apart or praise it. And also what you could do is you could go on Reddit. The subreddit is This Guy Edits, and there will always be now the bonus video of Dennis where you can see and hear us talk about the scene. Yeah, and if you're enjoying what you're hearing, if you like the podcast, tell your fucking friends. It really helps us out. It helps the podcast grow. It's been steadily growing, which we appreciate. And I guess it's a podcast that will never be used as a teaching tool. So... <laughs> Listen to it here, where you get the real, the dirty stuff. And speaking of dirty stuff, I, I did. It's funny because showing this clip from Mindhunter, I did feel a little when we decided on it. It was the the suggestion was based on someone in one of the YouTube comments mentioned us doing Zodiac, and I thought that was a cool idea. Yeah, and ended up on Mindhunter, and I think this is just a really cool scene, and it's a, uh, a show I've thought about a lot because I think it's one of the few shows that. <laughs> justifies Netflix's billion dollars a month spending spree that they're doing on original content. All right, Tyler, why don't we just set it up right now? <laughs> You're oh, welcome. Good, good idea. So Mindhunter is based on a book that I am unfortunately familiar with, written by Robert Douglas along with a ghostwriter, or sorry, John Douglas. And John Douglas was an FBI agent who began doing exactly what we see in the show, which is interviewing and talking to these serial killers called sequence killers at the time as they were developing the process of profiling through the FBI that allegedly led to them being able to sit in a room with no other information except for the details of the crime in cases such as the Atlanta child murderer and be able to tell you very specific things about the killer just purely based on the nature of the murders and all this came through these interviews with the serial killers and there'd always been talk of adapting it into something it was obviously an influence on silence of the lamb scott glenn played played the character based on john douglas in that film so it's had a lot of influences in terms of the genre of, of serial killer movies and so forth so to do a direct adaptation was always a thing i wondered how they would go about it because it's not a dramatic book you're not it's not we're not following john douglas's character arc we're just hearing about these disgusting and awful horrible murders and i don't recommend the book it was not 
not an enjoyable listen on cassette tape driving <laughs> across the country at 3 a.m. in the morning hearing elaborate murders in Utah detailed as you cross through Utah at 3 a.m. with your gas light coming on. So I don't recommend it at all, uh, but it, it, it is, it's very interesting in, in terms of, of the, the impact of, of the research and work he did and created that problem in terms of the adaptation. So when Fincher got his hands on it, it was like, oh boy, what's, what, what, what's, what are we going to have here? And I thought the way that they went about doing it was really incredible. Not something you could really get away with, I don't think, without a free license to do so. So this idea that Netflix isn't giving you notes, he'd had a huge success with House of Cards. It was just, what do you want to do? And to craft this incredibly complex psychological thing that is a crime investigation show in a sense. It is an FBI character shows examining crimes in a sense, but it's different than any other detective genre film because they're not so much exploring crimes week to week. They're not so much following a crime throughout a season. They're not so much having an existential crisis like True Detective. What they're doing is developing the process of solving crimes that we then see carried over into all these other shows. And there's, you know, there's crimes and stuff they look at. I think season two is going to become much more about that. So when you have that and you're not actually seeing murders happening in the show, which I thought is what it was going to be, all the violence and, and murder you see is all after the fact. It's all in photograph form. It's all in looking at a crime scene, perhaps. But very little of it at all is being done in a way that we depend on for these kind of suspense thriller genre films. So I think this scene's a great example of how they incredibly subconsciously created an incredibly suspenseful scene, an incredibly suspenseful series by subconsciously manipulating the audience and making these scenes much more about very specific elements that are important to scene work, which we'll, we'll talk about after we watch it. It premiered on Netflix last year. Is that enough of a setup, Sven? Uh, yes. The only thing I can actually add is that Charlize Theron is one of the producers as well, which I didn't know. Touche, yeah. And also, Fincher directed several of the episodes. He really committed to it and, yep. and definitely directed the first two in the finale and a couple others. And I also hear that they're working on Mindhunter Season 2 now. And actually, mm -hmm. I just did the video searching on YouTube and the agent that was dealing with me and figuring out whether we can actually shoot with the editors of Searching and how that would play and how we're going to deal with Sony, that same person is also handling Mindhunter, and we're trying to do the same thing, possibly. Oh, wow, that's Mind so funny, because I just r randomly sent you this and had no idea that was that was percolating. Yep, yep, but it's early, early, so we'll see if it happens. Do you want to talk about the searching video? Yeah, so I just put out a video about searching, which is that Sundance winner from earlier this year that one just finished its theatrical run, made really cool 70 million at the box office, and is a really great film. And I was totally, like, I enjoyed myself watching it, and then I saw it with my family afterwards, and they were like, the first 10, 10 minutes were like, do we really need to watch this? And then on minute 11, they were like, no, let's not turn it off. I want to figure out what happened, what is going on mm -hmm. here, because it's it hooks you. Like, once it starts, it you're just hooked. And I'm so happy that I was able to sit with Will and Nick, the two editors, and they really like open up their timeline and we looked at it on premiere, how they cut the scenes and then also how they brought it over into After Effects because this, it's a screen movie, which means the entire story takes place on screen. Everything has to be created in the computer, animated. So six months editing and then six months just working in After Effects every day 14 hour day average to pull this together um, they edited over a year on this and so i made this video with them which is way too long 20 minutes long but it like it, there's so much information <laughs> in there so much takeaway how you can tell a story like this and keep it really simple and engage the audience and i got hooked in right away and, and it's just a really great video and very very informative so congratulations to you on the accomplishment of it because wow thank you yeah no I, I totally got into it so 
that wasn't an easy edit. I spent a good two weeks editing this and I put everything in there that I could. So I'm I'm happy. So just to so just to set this scene up of Mindhunter, what we're dealing with is the second interview with Ed Kemper, who was the real the first serial killer that John Douglas uh, interviewed and they aren't doing the story of John Douglas they've created this character called Holden that's roughly based on him but also Holden's been created so that they can have some of those dramatic character development elements and not deal with the real guy because again in the book and we only barely even get into this in the scene, it's just the information that was shared. Mm-hmm. It's not about, ooh, you know, this was my journey of being sucked into this world. And that's kind of an arc Holden's going on. So what we get to see in this scene, I think the aspect that is interesting to look at it from when we watch through it yeah. is from the perspective of a seduction. And just keep that in mind as we watch it. And the whole thing of, of this series is it really nails the performances of the people playing these murderers. It's just a lot of subtext to the series as a whole. The way that people get into it and engage with it is very much, if you nerd out about true crime, this show pays tribute to all that and hits on all of it. So it's fun for people to interact about. But that subconscious aspect is a huge, huge, huge part of, of this scene as well, which we'll we'll talk about. Yeah, Sorry. I, I think two things. First of all, that's the premise of the entire show is that these that they're figuring out when they're trying to mass murderer. What is what is that called? Somebody well, they call them sequence killers. Sequence killers. So that there's there's something to why they're doing this. There's motivation. There's character to it. And so they need to get really into the psychological mind of these people. That's why it's called Mindhunter. And that that really makes for very interesting drama in each episode because you're really painting this these these characters on a on a very deep level that's number one the other thing is holden himself is a very unconventional young agent who um, if you if you haven't seen mindhunter and you're going to watch the scene now you think he's kind of a little dumb boy that doesn't understand what's going on but that's all mm-hmm. method he's trying to outplay somebody who's extremely intelligent and halfway through the scene he realizes that he's been played in a way that's at least how i read oh big time yeah and and i think that i i would go so far as to say holden is incredibly oblivious in this especially at the beginning of this show yeah and that's why he's so manipulatable and i think the proof of that is the scene that precedes this one where we see his girlfriend show all the ways that women manipulate men and how he can use that manipulation on Kemper and at the end of it he's like oh really like you <laughs> that's really what's happening and then so in this scene you actually see him trying to manipulate Kemper and then we're going to see yeah. you know <laughs> we're going to kind of see the result and then the weird twist that that result has on him yeah yeah and for most of the show he's always the one that has the upper hand like he can manipulate pretty much anybody but when it comes to to Ed that's sort of where he he found his match. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a fun thing. If you guys look at the show, let us know what you think. Because I think through this whole, even through this whole episode, it's kind of like a back and forth. Like Kemper's clearly manipulating Holden, though we don't realize it. Holden's Holden's then trying to seduce and manipulate Bill and just getting shut down. Bill's right about everything about Kemper. Yeah. Um, which we may not even find out until the end of the series, but you'll have to watch. And this is the second episode too, so it's not like spoiler territory either. Oh, cool. Should we give it a shot? So a little housekeeping. If you are new to the show, what we do is we're actually watching a clip that is available for free on YouTube. Somebody put it up there, not us. And it's there until somebody decides that it needs to go away. We'll leave that link in the description of this podcast and you can watch along. We're going to start it up and then you can play with us. The first time we play through all the way and just sort of describe what's happening. And then we go back and we analyze specific edits and shots and character choices, all that good stuff. What I also like to suggest is maybe just stop the podcast for a minute. If you are somewhere where you can watch the scene, watch it first and see what you notice. Then you'll be better prepared, but you don't have to. Do you want to do the countdown? Yeah, so here we go in three, two, 
All right, so real quick, we're seeing him hand over his weapon, and previously he signs a form just simply saying, yeah, okay, the prison's not held accountable if anything bad happens to me, if I get killed or murdered or anything. And at the beginning of the scene here, what we're listening to is Holden is using his tactic to try to talk Kemper's language. Exactly. And back then, no skirt in the FBI, no women, just men. Wow. Then I enroll in college, and suddenly I am Warren fucking baby. Wow. Everything goes. You take sugar? No. Cool. Milk. Thank you. You got it, man. Suddenly it's disco and poppers and fern bars. I am up to my neck in chicks. Pussy, pussy, pussy. I hear that. He's trying to uh, play along with Kemper, and I just like this twist in here where Kemper starts throwing it back to him a little bit. Next thing I know, I'm with a 24-year-old that I met in a bar. No woman has ever been so into me in my entire life. Don't brag, it's unbecoming. Oh, oh my God. I am so sorry. I'm kidding. It just really kind of throws Holden off his game. Yeah, he's toying with him. The things she comes up with in the sack. You gotta love that young pussy. I do. I really fucking do. You gotta make it with that young pussy real quick before it turns into mom. Yeah. This is fun, and he's really just set this this mouse trap now. Yeah. Holden's intention was to bond with him. Yeah, but also to coerce information out of him. Right, right. He's trying to, like, pretend he's his buddy. Right. To build some trust. And he ends up succeeding. This new girl, she take it up the ass? And this moment just gives me chills. We haven't really discussed it. Ask her. An asshole will suck your cock right in. Literally. It's like a hole that sucks. It's easy. But when you fuck somebody in the neck, it's entirely the opposite. It's nothing but resistance. It's really difficult. Okay, so he gets up and feel this. Basically, is now in a position where he can just snap his neck <laughs> if he wanted to. Like, yeah, very intimidating. Is this interesting? Yeah, his forefinger and thumb could just kill him, exactly. and then taps his arm. Skip some of the detail. No, I'm here for the detail. Ed is really in control of this, and he decides what happens and whether Holden might actually <laughs> die in this moment. Right. Your, uh, your mom worked on campus at UCSC, right? Remind me again what she did? And then also the little tap. It's almost like, to me, it almost seems like he's absolving Holden. Yep. Like Holden's sitting here trying to play on his level, and, <laughs> and then he's choking him, and then just that little tap of like, you don't have to fake it, pal. Like, well, it's a, it's a thing, obviously, in the actual moment, it's, you're, don't worry, you're okay, I'm not going to kill you, and I'm in control of you, but I like that sub-layer of, you're in way over your head, man. She had a failed marriage with my father. I looked a lot like him, so... You reminded her of him. Do you think you developed a dislike for young women as a result? As far as she was concerned, I was never going to end up with one of those girls because I was a fuck up and an embarrassment. You were a failure in her eyes. Look. And then the funny thing is that this confession only happens. Holden was almost accidentally successful because I think now that's when Kemper has established complete control. Yep. And so he thinks, okay, now I can talk about killing my mother, which we get with this great zooming thing. Yeah. Notice the movement of the camera now. Yeah, it's, it's all set up so perfectly, which we'll analyze in a moment, but I feel like in this moment, what he's doing is realizing he's actually being vulnerable. Women are born with this little hole between their legs, which every man on earth just wants to stick something into. And they're weaker than men. So they learn strategies. They deploy their minds and their sex and they intuitively learn to humiliate and that's the outcome of the scene is he needs to relinquish control in order to accomplish his goal which is mm-hmm. to to understand why Ed? they're killing right because that's the way that he's going to be able to find them and solve the future killings that will happen with other um, sequence killers yeah and then it all, you know, and then it, we go to Bill in his golf pants just chewing. Well, the scene's over, but then Bill picks him up and just chews Holden out for everything that happened, almost as if he predicted it. Obviously, Holden doesn't mention, yeah, he put his hands around my throat at one point. Um, <laughs> but I think it's just a really fun scene in terms of 
that being that choking thing i mean that's such a dramatic huge moment but it's set up so well that as an audience watching it you don't even realize how well kemper has laid this trap this is a this is a season defining scene i mean this is the scene Mm -hmm. that people talk about and that hooks you into the season where you're like i'm in or i'm just appalled how weird this is and how sick this is yeah and my experience watching it just in terms of the way the story's been set up and everything especially going back and looking at the other interactions with kemper it's all like from the start he's i mean you kind of know to some level he's trying to be in control and there's clearly a battle for you know a power dynamic in the scene through which they are trying to use seduction and stuff like that, trying to win each other over, trying to show, hey, I'm a good guy. Kemper's incredibly sensitive through the whole thing, which is always interesting. And he says things to Holden, that Holden thinks are being said about him, and when he pushes back on it, he realizes Kemper's just talking about himself and projecting himself through Holden and takes it very personally. But the, the choking thing, it's funny as a viewer, and I don't know how you felt watching it, Sven, but when it gets to that point, it's this moment of, everything suddenly clicks in. Like, you know all this stuff that they didn't make a big deal out of with close-ups of the guards looking the other direction and stuff like that. You know from kind of seeing it in these big wide shots from Holden's perspective that no one's there anymore. They're totally alone, and he can easily kill him. That no one's... And it's set up in the other scenes because you see the guards in the background are making a big deal out of looking through the windows and stuff. And Kemper's just 50 steps ahead of us through all this. It's like he's he knows about the forum being signed. He knows everything. And you also, because of that forum signing scene, when he's being choked, you realize, oh, he can die, and it's on him. There will be no repercussions for it. Yep, It's crazy. Well, let's get into it one more time from the beginning. This is like a big chess game. And everything is set up in a way that we're getting to that chess-made move. So we have an insert shot that turns out to be a boom up to Holden's face. That's on zero, mm-hmm. zero. His and just replaying that op- the first time he entered the prison, handing off the weapons, walking through the yeah. hall, going deep into the belly of the beast. Belly of the beast. We hear lots of noises. People are standing around, talking, chatting. Cops and uh, prisoners are all with each other which is the contrast mm-hmm. of what's about to happen and the yeah. other thing that's noteworthy is that about 10 seconds in we already get into the conversation and for a long time we're mm. still staying on the outside as he's walking up to it but we're already hearing how that conversation is starting which is uh, which is obviously a, a very um, stylistic way of editing a scene and something that's been done more recently I mean, it's been for many years that this has been used, but it's not a conventional way of getting into a scene. Yeah, the sound overlap, which is sometimes is done in writing, and it's interesting. I think technology makes that a, a much more yeah. affordable luxury as well it, to do a, which, a sound overlap. Which, it's so long here, you really don't know what the actual layout is going to be of that room, but you would mm-hmm. assume that they're going to be sitting facing each other in some form of uh, interrogation room, right? Like the stuff that we're used to. And this is not at all what's happening. Once we cut to it, it's a bigger room. It's like it feels like a library or something or like a a hangout room that usually is used for all the prisoners, but it's locked off. There's nobody there. It's kind of dark. Um, Ed is kind of the host here. He's like pouring coffee. He's, um, He's like hosting this. Um, so very unconventional way of what a usually a interrogation would look like. Yeah, and it's very it's a very casual thing too. And, and we'd seen this room in the previous scene that you know it's dedicated just to these interviews, but yeah. now it's just such a casual vibe of like, hey, we're friendly now. Like my guards dropped when I see him over there making coffee. He's not being as threatening as he was before. Like the previous scene where he just keeps getting closer and closer to killing range on Holden. Yeah. And there's a guard. The cool thing is that they're not doing these close-ups of like the guard reading the newspaper and hinting at all at what's going to happen. Well, there is it's one- totally taking you off your guard. There's one really cool shot with the the cop in the newspaper in about 42. Yeah. But before we get to that, at 21 seconds, we kind of have like a profile shot of Holden just like really sunk deeply into his seat. Like he's super casual, super comfortable, <laughs> and just spilling out his guts. And he thinks like, this is going to be my strategy, how I'm going to 
like bond mm-hmm. with this guy, build some trust, and then get the information that I need. That's the starting of the scene. Like he feels in control. But he's also using the physical manipulation that his girlfriend articulated to him. Yep. Oh, what was that? What did she say? Just all that stuff. Like you can, you know, you can cross your legs towards him. You can, ha- you know, different ways you can use your body language too. Yeah. Uh, see. <clears throat> and she's not talking about Kemper. She's talking about the way she's she's been manipulating Holden. Yeah. And he's like, huh? What? <laughs> and then she laughs at him, and it goes into this scene, and he's trying it. So from this point then forward, we have a bunch of like long shots from across the room as they're talking. You take sugar? No. Cool. Milk. Thank you. You got it. And um, we're working our way basically closer. And when you listen to the sound as well, it's pretty noisy. You can still hear a lot of chattering in the background. But as uh-huh. we get closer and closer, that that sound seems to drown out, seems to go away. Wow. That's really cool. That adds a big effect to it. Of just that feeling of suddenly getting to that moment and realizing, oh, everyone's left. Yeah. And he had 42 seconds. That's where we saw the guy with the newspaper. He mm-hmm. Just the whole time, he's just reading the newspaper, not really paying attention. He's not even there. We don't see him. And then the, the waving of the newspaper, that sound, really suddenly mm-hmm. made me notice, oh, there's actually a guard here that's supposed to watch over this. Um, well, we see his face, too, like he is kind of doing his job. Yeah. And then he just gives up, like, this is stupid. Some of which because Kemper starts saying the dirtier stuff. Yeah, the yeah they like, get really dirty. I don't want to deal with this. The cop is like, what? What did I just hear? I am up to my neck in chicks. Pussy, 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 I hear that. It turns out. If I was the guard, I'd be, like, all over this conversation. I mean, this doesn't happen every day. I'll be <laughs> listening in. This is kind of interesting. But I also don't put it past Kemper to know this guard's buttons and stuff. No woman has ever been so into me in yeah, my entire I'm at 55 right now. We're still sort of working our way into the scene. He's getting ready with the coffee. This is the first time that we cut to this profile shot. And we should talk about whenever characters move, the camera moves, which there's a great video essay by the Nerd Writer that talks about David Fincher obsession with camera mm-hmm. movement in sync with the character. This scene yeah. follows that rule. And I, I don't know if he directed the scene or people yeah. just sort of, um, that's part of the Bible when you get to direct one of his episodes that you just Follow he directed along. it. Oh, he did. Okay, good. Yeah. So, of camera really only moves with the character here. And now listen at one thirteen fourteen when he's gonna sit down. That sound right there. That sounds like a guy that's two hundred fifty, three hundred pounds. Right. And it's really important with the sound to make sure that we understand how much bigger this guy is compared to Holden. And yeah. like not even him would have a chance if he chose to if if Ed chose to kill him, he wouldn't have a chance to try and get yeah. out of it. And we're seeing now behind him the guards' backs are turned, which he's already known before he came over. He's seen that they're engaged in something, then he's left yeah. that he's not making I mean he's making coffee, but he's also just staring at those guards. Yep. Just waiting for them to be distracted. He knows everything that's going on in this cell, so, in this prison. So then for, at 126, we're in a couple of profile shots for a while. And I don't know if I'm fully correct with this, but I'm going to say whenever they kind of disagree with each other, when they're saying something that the other person is going to be um, disagreeing with or surprised by, we tend to be in these profile shots, which isolates the character. And whenever they're bonding or whenever they're connecting, we tend to be more in these over-the-shoulders where we see um, sort of a dirty, like the the shoulder of one of the characters. Yeah. Just as a general, I I, I mean, I wouldn't say that this is a hard rule, but I feel like these were some of the sort of instinctual choices the editor made. Yeah, and I think it, it's interesting because you don't see those so much in the first scene. It's all about 
you know, just shot, reverse shot, yet there's so much going on in terms of, oh, God. And you're just subconsciously picking up in the first scene the guards are watching watching him a lot through the window and stuff and maybe even getting distracted a little. Yeah. All this stuff subconsciously clicking in. Then this one, we start playing with the profile. I think a lot of which is to suddenly change it up mm-hmm. and suddenly realize, oh, we're in new territory because he takes it to a whole new place in terms of the depth of the conversation. Yeah. So I think switching to profile shots for that has that effect too and then also just sets you up for this yeah. this choking thing at 202. Yeah, and there's also a clear restraint in terms of the not using close-ups here. It's really, I, I can't remember, but I don't think there was even a real close-up there, like a medium close-up was as close as they got. But p- yeah. before we get to that, here at 157 when he gets up, it's mm-hmm. all about the weight and the size. Camera moves yeah. with him. But resistance. Sound design. Really difficult. Moves what over. You, you hear right. the, the shackles there or the handcuffs. He puts the hand in there and on his chin in the profile shot. The hand is bigger than his throat. It's at least that's what it looks like. This, feel it. It's all muscle. Yeah, and it's, it's so at one fifty seven he's in his seat. At two o two he has his fingers around his throat and could be killing him. Yeah, two o six. It's, it happens so fast, and it's fun also that shot to follow him in that rising shot because you get to see Holden's little head in the foreground yeah. and realize, oh, there's no escape. What's what's going to happen? And then there we are. Yeah, by the time that Holden starts choking a little, I think that's when the audience realizes, okay, this can go two ways now. Cartilaginous. <laughs> and then the little tap at 210 is just yeah the tap is too is good killer he's and it's basically amazing telling them don't worry i got this you're in good hands i'm not gonna hurt you for now it's and it's and it's also saying yes i could have killed you yes <laughs> just so you know and i i like the timing here when we cut to him checking we'll talk about it in a second but for a show that's so much about serial killers and murders and then not showing any, for a show that's so much just about the psychology, the interaction about the psychology of these people, like that's the conflict of most of the scenes is Holden having these different people in his life, whether it be his partner, whether it be his girlfriend, whether it be the expert, the woman that they bring in that becomes the third part of the trifecta. It's all just about discussing psychology, which is really interesting. So to find ways to just dramatize, dramatize something as simple as this is it's such a, it's such impressive from a filmmaking perspective. You know, yeah, you can murder someone in a shower, and that's exciting and done in an expert way too. But to make something like this so, like, ultimately terrifying to a viewer is just really incredible. Totally. I'm gonna play at two twelve. He's sitting back down. Listen again to the sound. Skip some of the detail. That's like the loudest it's been so far. And no spoilers, but the way that the sound and weight of Kemper is used in the finale is is something that was really, like one of the most chilling, memorable scenes I've ever seen. Now, one other thing I just want to say about that sit-down is there's something like you... Because re-watching it, I kind of expected, after he taps his arm, that we would... I just, in the memory of it, that, that we quickly cut to Kemper looking to see if the guards are looking or not but there's something so much better about there's like a good three seconds that we wait after he releases him that we cut to the reverse of Kemper looking out the windows to see that the guards aren't looking just ensuring like did I did I get away with that or shit maybe I should have just done it um there was just something really perfect about the timing of that that seemed a little unorthodox that I feel something Which you talked about. What shot are you about. talking about? Where he's looking through the guards? When we cut to the reverse, like the instinct would be to just cut. So we're at 208, he releases him. Yeah. Taps him at 210, turns 211. Hold on. And then... Wait for me, 211 is now, okay. And then we cut to him him checking. It just seems like such a long oh, time. Oh, so you're talking about cutting. camper checking. Yeah, yeah. And the instinct would be, for me, would be to cut to Kemper checking much sooner. In yeah. my in my memory, that's kind of how it plays. Yeah. But that thing you talk about of, well, let the audience form it. Yes. It's so much more impactful to sit there with Holden, like, holy shit, what's going on? And you almost get to that point of like, well, what the fuck? Like, it's almost perfectly, not almost, it's perfectly timed in terms of you're really at that 
climax of like what's what's happening like are the guards coming like what's what's going on and then we cut and see him surveying the windows and you realize oh he knew he knew this whole time i wonder about this moment whether this is the actor making a choice or whether that's the director giving to me it yeah it just seems so perfectly timed out in terms of but to lay the trap the way that they did in terms of knowing the guards backs are turned et cetera et cetera et cetera you have to have that acknowledgement of Kemper of okay did it work where are we and oh maybe I I misread this they're actually completely gone now which I think they are (laughs) when he he turns around which he yeah there's no I guess yeah the guard's just a little further like they're just off in their own world by the time he sits if I was the editor of that thing and I wanted to make that point I would have tried Mm -hmm. to find another shot to show Mm -hmm. like a POV of him looking at the guards or so the way it is I think it just happened and either that's just brilliant filmmaking that they're like decided you know we're just gonna let it be and whoever catches this gets Mm -hmm. gets that information subconsciously or Mm -hmm. um or it just happened in the moment that the actor decided to make that choice and they weren't actually really prepared for that they didn't have a shot for that yeah but i think the thing that's interesting is because it is fincher how much of how much of like the fincher films are about what's going on in the frame verse oh i'm gonna tell it like there's so many editors and filmmakers like my instinct would be much sooner set up that that just really show that shot of the paper going up in the guard's face yeah and i remember show kemper's pov of the other guard turning away yeah i remember fincher talking in an interview that he's super aware obviously of when he cuts or when he goes to a close-up that the audience knows this is important and so you can't get away with it if you do it, if you overdo it, because the audience knows, okay, this is the director telling me this is this matters. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that could totally be that he decided, okay, we're just going to let it be what it is, and it's so much better this way. And it goes on subconsciously over the course of two scenes, like the audience kind of becoming familiar and in the back of your mind starting to think like, well, where are the guards? And you're constantly the way it's framed and everything, you're kind of constantly aware of them. So I even knew, I even knew at the time Kemper's checking, I knew exactly where those guards were going to be. And that's what's cool about, just in terms of the way it was set up and everything. And that's what's cool about, you know, shooting it with these wide shots and that are kind of reflect a human, maybe 50 millimeter kind of human perspective, that lens that Hitchcock loves so much because we're really just getting to drink it in very much from Holden's perspective, much more than we're seeing those shots of Holden. So... Yeah. We're kind of witnessing this this almost from his seat, which is really cool. And I think that I mean I guess that's the, the kind of the thing that we're kind of we're negotiating is yeah. But and the thing you and I are kind of negotiating is I think that the entire design of the scene was with that in mind that the audience is going to pick up on this stuff, and it wasn't uh, so much a thing of oh look at this we don't need to use these close ups because this really works. It just seemed just from everything that happens in the writing, everything of we're being walked down a path we don't know we're being walked down until his hands are on the throat. Yeah. And the most effective way it seems to do that, as opposed to a scene that happens later in the show, is not to cut to, oh, look, no one's looking now. Yeah. Now the scary stuff can begin, which adds a lot of suspense and, and fear to it. Just to finish that thought off, if I just I froze at 2.19. And if you look at the composition of that shot and you see the guard in the background just on the far right behind the window that right. has the grid that's completely designed that's a composed shot oh yeah that is telling us nobody's watching him and throughout yeah. the entire scene you always have these moments where you see these guards just turned away not paying attention um, yeah by and there, there's so many opportunities awesome. to show that with a tighter shot too that they don't which makes it really cool too the restraint is like impressive and also go back if you have Netflix and watch the earlier scene and just pay attention to the way the guards are being set up in that because it's really impressive they're much more breathing down Kemper's throat yeah and I also did a I did a scene of Mindhunter in the video with Steve Halfish 10 tips by big film editors and one was about the bystander and there's mm-hmm. a scene in Mindhunter where they totally get one over on a, a sequence killer and 
um, it's all being like the audience. Oh, is, yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Is experiencing this through the eyes of the bystander. So they're. Who ends up being. In the, you're talking about the guard, and he ends up being incredibly important to the plot. Yeah, yeah. Of this story later because he leaks some stuff to the press that kind of really throws Holden's life into into flummox. Yeah, it's the scene is basically showing us how far and how smart they are, have become in in tricking these new sequence killers because of all the stuff they've learned from somebody like Ed Camper, um, mm -hmm. and that they're now applying and using and tricking these people to make mistakes and um, basically incriminating themselves yeah which is fine because in the book it is that is a real account in the way that they use the rock but the way that it's not the actor the, an actual physical rock but the way that it uh is done in the in the show is all about holden descending into this darkness and take in and continuing this manipulation and seduction thing but he's he's in way too deep to, he's, he's mimicking uh, Kemper to that, that killer and stuff like that. And that ends up being a huge problem for him when the guard, who you think is just a bystander, that actually ends up being incredibly crucial to the plot. Because I remember when they started cutting to him rewatching it, I was like, oh, that's cool to kind of work that in. But this is Fincher. This is, shouldn't this be more important? This character? That just seems weird to go to a bystander and then you realize he's, he's everything um, in terms of moving the story forward. So Cool. Mm -hmm. 345 so let's go to that because that's sort of the climax of the scene this is where we're starting to learn this is where everything pays off well here's the thing to the moment where he now talks about why he kills i'm listening yeah women are born with this little hole before we get into it 345 i'm going back it starts off with holden pulling himself up on the chair and then moving forward. That's what initiates the movement right there. And it's mm -hmm. kind of a pan, but then it actually turns into a dolly shot, I feel. Right there. The and mm -hmm. then that throws the, the edit into the next cut, 342, which is uh, a dolly forward or a zoom in, not sure. Probably a dolly. And then everything is moving from this point forward. Do you think these are dolly shots? 356? Gotta be, yeah. yeah. You never know. I mean, Fincher likes a lot of editors, especially in television, like to like to do the pan themselves. I mean, this is a pretty extreme one. Yeah, digital zooms. But you can see Fincher planning that into the shooting. It feels to me like a dolly shot because the background is moving. Did your mother humiliate you? Exactly, yeah. 416, 418. Very the well designed. And here's maintained. where the music becomes... Ed. I mean, it started before, but it was kind of just sound. And now it turns into like a music 426 that is um, kind of like a Hitchcock to me, like a mm -hmm. Bernard Herrmann theme, which is cool. Yeah. Because it, it gives us that nostalgic feeling of these suspense thrillers. So that's I, I just wanted to point that out that really the scene pays off with this really well-timed dolly shots. It's not random. It's not like, okay, we have a dolly. We're going to cover the entire scene in a dolly. And then the editor is going to cut to it every once in a while when they feel about it. It's a very well-designed scene that has purpose. And I think that's as tight as we get maybe on shots of Kemper. Um in that scene. And then the fun thing also is I was talking about it being where he's finally showing his vulnerability almost, yeah. you think, almost when it ends. And then immediately Bill in the car is just saying, bullshit. He's just manipulating you. So even as a viewer, you're like, wait, what? Am I, you know, you're just so manipulated, which is excellent. Yeah. I also love that the last shot of him, it is the closest shot and it's still not a close up, it's a medium shot. And he turns away from the camera at the end, which sort of releases us from this scene. Mm -hmm. It's like he decides when the scene is over. It's not us. It's not, it's not Holden. He decides when he's done. And yeah. that's so cool. And it's so fun because you hear actors and everybody talk about how Fincher does these 60 takes and these minutiae detail. That's why I don't think that was an improvised look around. Yeah. 
that he did because you hear about this minutia and it's like what it just sounds like is he crazy like what are we waiting on here because a lot of directors do 60 takes and it's just job security or just because they don't have any ideas and they just want to keep filming so there's something to edit but with Fincher it's always like leading towards something so it's cool I've never actually sat and like analyzed one of the scenes before so it's cool to see what that minutiae is like what all these important little aspects are and it's all just really really well done well I kind of wish that it was the actor making an instinctive choice because filmmaking is also all about the process and discovery in the moment and if mm-hmm. Fincher is just that brilliant that everything is pre-planned, that kind of takes the fun out of it. I think that there needs to be a little bit of discovery and, and so on and so forth. And sure, but I think I think it's more success on the editing end in terms of just making that seem so naturalistic and casual. Because I true. can't, I don't even think Fincher's responsible for that. I can't imagine there's a script for that scene that doesn't say releases Holden's throat and casually checks the guard windows right you know to make sure they're not looking like I, I would even be willing to bet that in the script phase we're seeing all that stuff I'm saying I'm glad wasn't close-ups and stuff of the guards are reading newspapers in the background yep. there had to be lines for that and but Fincher just saying well that's going to happen in the background we're not going to draw that to focus yeah but there's there's two scenarios here one is that Fincher gave him the direction on set and said by the way once you're done just check that the that the cops are not looking give me a little look there or he he did nothing he just set up the scene and said go right and i i i wish it would be the the latter because that'd be so much more exciting in terms of the organic like then it's just happening but who knows and ultimately it doesn't matter it happened and it works which is the most important part so if anyone can find the script for Mindhunter, my bet is that that was written into the script. Sven is hoping it was an actor improvisation. And <clears throat> the other option is that Fincher controlled all of it and generated it and everything. Yeah, he could very well have seen this just in the moment because he probably doesn't have that much time to focus on things in pre-production. He's so well-versed and <laughs> so on. He's just going to trust himself to figure it out in the moment. And that could, know. could be true, too. I know that Spielberg oftentimes figures this stuff out on set. Yeah. No, it's possible. But uh, but I'm just saying, considering the way this entire scene is set up, like that's that's the drama of the entire scene is revolving around the chess moves with those guards. Yeah. It's very hard to imagine that the the there's an unawareness about Kemper taking that in for the first time is the, it's the first time he even looks around at the guards also. So yeah. maybe it was more of telling the actor, don't look at the guards so much. Don't let us know that you're looking. And in the editing too, like not tipping the hand that he's constantly aware. Yeah. I'm pretty um, sure the newspaper turn or like flipping the newspaper over. That's very well timed. That's, that's to the line. And I think the newspaper is digital. Debate amongst yourselves. I'm just kidding. Um, so if, yeah, if you want to see the videos that we're doing to this, we, we're, I guess it's not going directly on the YouTube channel now. You can check on Patreon. You can check on the Facebook page for links to those. They're really great videos. Yeah, it's the Facebook. We have a Facebook group, This Guy Edits. We have a Reddit, This Guy Edits. We have a Patreon, This Guy Edits. So on either one of those, we'll post a link to the video once it's up. Yeah, and look forward to Mindhunter Season 2. Let us know what you think of the show if you check it out. And if you are enjoying the show, let a friend know. Spread the word about the podcast. We appreciate the constantly growing listens. It's fun. It's a very much community-built show, it feels like. So thank you for your interactions, feedback, and opinions. And thank you to Curta for the music, curtamusic.com. And as Sven always says, just added. Was there anything else you wanted to say? I feel like I might have cut it off. Hold on, let me check my notes. Oh, um, notes. Yeah, so Fincher style. I, I said earlier, okay, he he gets into the scene. He's very excited, well-spirited. And at the end... No, that's a room with a view. Never mind. Different notes. <laughs> Um, Happy fucking editing.